Hey everyone, it is Wednesday. You are listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key and we are selling Sacramento. Today's show, I have two very special guests, Mr. Jonathan Burgess and Mr. Chris Lodgson, and we are going to bring you some information that we hope you'll find helpful. I'd like to first preface it with a foundation to the discussion in the event that we have some new viewers, some new listeners. When we read American history books, they're usually centered around one narrative. America's white citizens are portrayed primarily as social innovators and people of progress, while its black citizens appear always in need of being rescued by their white counterparts. And the racial disparities that they experience are usually because of poor choices, poor choices and bad behavior patterns. That's how blacks are portrayed throughout US history. However, in an article at urban.org entitled, How We Should Talk About Racial Disparities, it reads that this type of narrative minimizes or erases the impact of the human trafficking and bondage of people of African descent and the subsequent terrorizing and humiliation of black people through violence, the black codes and Jim Crow. And it implicitly perpetuates the belief that white people are doing better because they are inherently better or are working harder, which lays the bedrock for white supremacy. And the historical context of racial disparities in every domain, health, home ownership, education and beyond, it reveals a more accurate national narrative in which government-sanctioned policies and practices have facilitated the upward mobility of white Americans and created barriers to mobility for black Americans. Policies, more than culture, choices, or genes, policies explain disparate outcomes because race has no biological basis and was created solely to justify and facilitate systemic oppression. By consistently providing context, we can help shape a new narrative that indicts the systems that created the injustices rather than the people who were oppressed by them. Let me repeat that. By consistently providing context that's giving you a window to see through. We can help shape a new narrative that indicts the systems that created injustices. We're not saying you did it. We're saying the systems created these injustices rather than accusing the people who were oppressed by them. Rather than saying black people are just lazy, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have to have an understanding that there were systems put in place that helped facilitate the oppression of black people, which has placed us in the position that we are in today for the most part. It's policies and laws, not choices, cultures, or genes. And these policies are collectively called institutional racism or systemic racism. 
It's a term that refers to a form of racism that's embedded in the laws and regulations of a society or an organization, and it manifests as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, education, and political representation. And if we examine the long history of America's policies and practices and laws that created structural racism in the US, we can quickly assess how it has held back black Americans for generations, for generations through the intentional exclusion and oppression of people of color, the hallmarks of American democracy, which are opportunity, freedom, and prosperity that largely been reserved for white people only. The deep racial and ethnic inequities that exist today are a direct result of structural race racism. The historical and contemporary policies, practices, and norms that create and maintain white supremacy. No one likes to use that word because it sounds like a dirty little word, white supremacy. But that is the truth in which Americans of African descent have been pushed and oppressed to live in that system. That system was created and structured just for Americans of African descent. So today, because all hope is not lost, it's never lost. When something is broken, we can fix it. We are America, right? We, we just need to get to where we're trying to be. We need to get to where we sing about, land of the free, home of the brave. We need to get to all that, right? The vision is good. We've written the vision, the vision is plain. We are still working on getting there. So today we're going to provide context to help shape a new narrative, again, indicting the systems that created the injustices rather than the people who were oppressed by them. And how are we gonna do that? What's on the table today, ladies and gentlemen? Reparations. Reparations. I'd like to play a video clip before I introduce our guests again. I told you who they were. They're right here, waiting for, waiting, just brewing to jump in. But I wanna play a video clip of Jonathan Burgess. First brought you the story of the Burgess family of Sacramento who claim that they own the first black church in the state of California, along with sprawling orchards and land in that same area. Uh, they're hoping to get official recognition from the state of California, which they believe illegally seized that property from their family. Thanks for joining us tonight at 10 o'clock. I'm Eric Carryman. And I'm Nikki Lorenzo. That land has since become a state park. Today, Fox 40's Marina Shaddix was there exclusively as Jonathan Burgess virtually testified in front of the state's reparations task force to tell his side of the story. I would like to recognize John Burgess. You're recognized. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, my name's Jonathan Burgess, and I'm here to testify. Jonathan Burgess, a fifth-generation Californian, local entrepreneur, and Sac City Fire Battalion Chief, testified today in front of the state's reparations task force to discuss the Burgess family's history in the Gold Rush town of Coloma, less than an hour away from Sacramento. Thanks to the Department of Justice, I was informed that 
yes, laws were actually passed through the legislation to allow the attorney general and legislators to condemn property and not pay families. That man right there, the Rufus Burgess, the guy. He says the Burgess family is one of those families. He shared how he says the state wrongfully acquired the land of his great-grandfather, Rufus M. Burgess, at least 88 acres. He got the land with help from his father, also named Rufus, who had come to California in 1849 as a slave. We're threatened to be prosecuted by the same state that's supposed to be free. In the event they didn't sell their land, orchards, farmland, even the African church, which no one seems to know about today, although there are records and it was clearly documented, the family holds deeds today. John says he worked with state historians for the past four years, gathering data on the family's roots in Coloma. They make little to no mention of the pioneer Burgess family when so much was established. Well, John said today's hearing was decades in the making. From the first time his mother told him about the family's history in Coloma, they said this is a very big step in what's sure to be many more meetings to come. It's really an honor to hear from you um, as a true native son of California. Um, and if you could, if you wanted to reiterate, you know, what an ideal reparations package would look like. Those properties should be returned to actual owners and leases enacted for 200 years and they pay all the back pay with restitution. Now, I want to stop it right there because she asked you, one of the task force committee members said, you tell us what would be the right thing for California to do in order to compensate your family for this land. And Jonathan, your response was? Uh, to give the property back to the landowners, the rightful landowners, and enact leases for 200 years um, that the state of California will actually lease that property and do all the back pay going back to when the land was seized um, with restitution for the harm and the damages that were done. What I didn't get to say was that, and I think I mentioned it later, um, that was farmland and there were orchards there. And so that was a way for our family to make a living. Not only did they seize it and condemn the property and say it was had no value, um, there was no money given. And so when you talk about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I mean, yes, my family did it with resilience. But um, just this didn't happen to every family that was of the gold rush. There's more to talk about. I don't I could take up the whole show, but right. this is about sharing it and telling a story. And so. Yeah, that's what I said. And I, I, I look at parks and institutions, prisons, parks, state parks, state buildings, railroad museums, completely different now from all the research that I've done and what I know historically and tactics used by our government have not changed. And tell us a little bit about the website that I just posted, AfricanAmericanGoldRushAssociation.org. Yeah, so that website was, you know, the grassroots from this trial here, um, it will bring to light the pioneer, the pioneers of the gold rush, which actually had everything to do with California being the fifth largest economy that are not talked about. There was a black community in El Dorado County, in Coloma, in Placerville, <laughs> in uh, Mud Springs, as they call it, Shingle Springs. There were a group of churches there. And so <laughs> that gold rush museum will not only restore the church that nobody wants to talk about because it is in fact still standing and it was called the African church, mm -hmm. um, but reinstate those orchards and really have a place for that's, you know, inclusive for everybody to come and know true inclusive history. So now, that's a I, I appreciate that. And I know that there is so much more that you can say about that. And um, before we, before, because we are going to dig into that, 
you said something that was very key and it was something I ran across earlier today as I was preparing for the show of how the USDA actually has been part of the demise of African-American farmers here in the US. The numbers, the ownership of African-American farmers has gone down exponentially over within this decade due in part to policies and, yep. you know. Institutional policy. Yeah, by the USDA. Not when they apply for loans that help get white farmers through bad seasons, black farmers got denied. Their lands were stripped from them. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres of land ownership where there was a high number of black farmers at the beginning of the 19th, you know, 1900s, whereas now that number has gone down exponentially. And this information, this the research into these dealings is fairly recent. It, it's not something that it's not information. No one dove into this. Like it's just been allowed to be happening, if that makes any sense. And you're th and you're we're, and we're you know what happened to fair housing? What happened to you know we have all these laws now that says that it's not you can't discriminate. Right. That's what people say. Yet these types of policies are still in place and these things are happening. I, you want to say something, Jonathan, go right ahead. Well, it's key. I just want to say that it's it's just classic. You know, we want to, you know, mask over the past, not talk about it and just say start fresh new right here. And we're looking to, you know, let's repair some wrongs at the institutions of California. But the whole entire nation did. That's what mm -hmm. we're talking about today. Yeah. Absolutely. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Chris is going to join in and chime in because he has an update for us. Chris has been doing some groundbreaking grassroots work for I don't know how long. But, you know, when when big change happens, there is a lot of work happening in the background silently before we actually see the real fruits and the results. And so Chris and his team are uh, those individuals who've been doing that work. I'm new to this information, but I'm glad that I'm now learning, absolutely. Uh, but Chris and Jonathan both, you know, they've been in this researching this type of, of information and trying to help correct these wrongs for a long time. So we appreciate them being on the show today. We're going to take a break. You're listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I'm Agent Key, and we'll be right back. Agent Key. Hey everyone, you are listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key, and we are talking about reparations, in particular, the state of California, and we are making history because right now we are on the path of reparations becoming a reality. So first of all, what is the purpose of reparations? If you were listening before we went on the break, we went into detail about the oppression, about the system, systemic racism, and the societal uh, injustices that were brought against 
Americans of African descent and the consequences that we are still enduring today, present day. And so what is the purpose of reparations? Reparations serve to acknowledge the legal obligation of a state or individual or individuals or a group to repair the consequences of violations, either because it directly committed them or it failed to prevent them. And in the case of United States of America versus Americans of African descent, it was both. They directly committed the violations and they failed to prevent them because there were consequences of the violation. There were consequences of the policies that were implemented and instituted. And so today we have two bills going down legislative tracks on the federal level and on the local level. On the federal level, level introduced by and sponsored by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee is HR 40. So if you'd like to Google HR 40 and get the details on that, you'll see what's happening at the federal level. I think that was introduced in January of 2019. Okay. Okay. And then on the state level, we have AB 3121. And so we have with us today, I'm happy that he's here because this man is just everywhere and he his follow-up is so good. Mr. Chris Lodgson, talk to us, sir, about AB 
CJEC, as they're commonly known, fights for reparations and reparative justice at the state level. And so the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California, it's a statewide advocacy group consisting of local partner advocacy groups and individuals throughout California, focusing primarily on issues surrounding the African-American community, stemming from historic and present systemic challenges that confront the African-American community, and in particular, reparations, business and government policies. And so Chris is currently, Chris and the team, they're currently following the AB 3121 task force. And if you want to be notified on specific AB 3121 task force updates, you can go to www.cjecofficial.org www.cjecofficial.org. And if you're watching, that's the link that is showing right now across the screen. Yes. And you can join the task force email list. And they also have a little survey that they'd like to give you as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, now, they just had their last meeting. And I have to tell everyone what CJEC was because I am now... I got. I have a, a a view of what's going on with CJEC. I get the emails. I'm you know I'm watching. I'm I'm on a committee, and you know as far as helping with with getting the information out there, Thank the show you. being one of those resources. But you guys do so much more, and so you covered the last uh, meeting. Yeah. Talk to us about what happened. Yeah, so thank you, and I want to give a shout out to uh, our our media partner, ETM Media Group, who, who is live streaming each and every single one yeah. of the California Reparations Task Force hearings on YouTube, and so you can see last, last week's meetings on YouTube, you can see the ones that happened in July on YouTube, and the ones that happened in June, you can also see the ones that are happening in, in October, uh, on October 12th and 13th on YouTube and also the ones that are happening on December 8th and 9th, but just a little plug for the upcoming meetings. Uh, but yeah, uh, so there was a lot that happened in the, the meetings this last September uh, 23rd. Uh, a couple of big things that happened was, I think we just sort of heard about it, right? The uh, testimony of folks like Jonathan Burgess, families like his who really are at the center of what this is about, right? These are our first generation, you know, Calif- Californians. These are actually people who, who were here before there was a state of California, right. right? Right. So this is this is you know this is it's actually an honor for me, someone who's newer to California, to be even talking to and talking among persons like Jonathan Burgess. Right. But, they even referenced him as yeah. an original son of California. Right. 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 And and so it's so it's so it was the first time we got a on the actual state government record. The testimony of folks like Jonathan Burgess. So that's a that's a big part of what we heard on last week at the last meetings. But we also had a few really really other big things happen. One, we had the first for the first time we heard the the specifics of the community engagement plan that the task force members are going to be launching later on this year. So I think you all know, and this is why why you're helping out with 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 this key and Jonathan, you're on this too, right? The black community has to be engaged in this process from, from I won't say just the start, from before the start right. to after the end, right. right? And so that is what the task force has been working through and thinking through over the last few months. How are they going to engage the, the black community 
for this task force work. And so we, we got to hear some details from uh, task force member Dr. Cheryl Grills, who is who has been taking the lead on a lot of the um, community engagement work. Uh, the task force selected the UCLA, UCLA Bunch Center as the sort of central organization to help facilitate the the community engagement. And then the, the UCLA Bunch Center is going to be working with organizations and then groups and people all around California to help make sure that black folks are engaged in this process from, again, pre-start to after the end. Now, do uh, they talk about yeah. in detail how they plan to do that? How can, if, if I'm somebody, a layperson listening right now, what are some of the plans that they have to engage me? You know, yeah. what about those people who aren't watching the show? Yeah, so uh, so great question. So the, the, the main piece that I think is going to be the biggest thing for this communication plan are the listening sessions. So there are 12 listening sessions that are planned on top of the 10 already public meetings that the task force is legally required to do. So we have a total of like 22 at least uh, points of, of, of contact, but specifically those 12 listening sessions are, I think, going to be the best ways for black folks who are maybe, you know, I know a lot of people listen to your show. I know a lot of people, a lot more people are going to listen to your show. A lot of people are on social media, a lot of people are online, but a lot of our folks are not, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we're going to have to do, and I think these listening sessions are designed to do, is take the message to where the people are, right? And also give black folks a, a way to not just come and listen to what the task force thinks, but actually have the task force listen to what black folks think, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what you you called it um, responsive uh, communication in one of our organizing meetings, right? Responsive communication. And so these listening sessions are, I think, going to be some of the best opportunities for that. Uh, again, some of this stuff doesn't launch until later on in the year, even some early next year. But uh, CJEC is not waiting for any of that to happen, right? Yeah. We have been doing community engagement for you know several months now. We had a community meeting in Oakland at the 81st Avenue Library in East Oakland just this last Saturday. Uh, this is our third community meeting, third listening session. So we're taking the initiative on our own to bring this message to black folks and we're happy to work with the task force when they're ready to join us. Now, how would an individual get involved with the listening session? Where do they, do, is this something, you yeah. know, like you said, they're not logging on, they may not be online. Where where are these listening sessions taking place? So we don't know exactly when, when and where all of the listening sessions are gonna be yet. We haven't uh, seen the exact dates and, and uh, times yet, so stay tuned for that. But the way that we've been, we've been making contact contact with black folks who may not be online is we've been canvassing. We've been out in the actual black community. We've been out at community events. We've been going door to door. We've been, you know, uh, uh, flyering. So uh, the way that we are doing our community engagement and reaching black folks who don't even know most of the time that there is a reparations task force. Mm-hmm. Don't even know yet. There's a lot of us who don't know yet. And so we've taken it upon ourselves to go to where the people are. Now, I know not long ago, I want to say it was either back in August or July, there was an event that you held at, was it Cap City in Oak Park? Yeah, right on. Yep. That's so. That's and that's a great example. So we wanted to make sure that we went to Oak Park, right? And that's a, a very, you know, uh, important place in the city of Sacramento, right? Especially for for black folks, right? right. So, yeah, Oak, Oak, Oak Park was our first community meeting back in June. We held a virtual meeting in July, and we were down in Oakland, on the week of, you know, or last Saturday, we'll, we'll, be, we'll probably be back in Oakland 
in early October. We'll be here in uh, Sacramento uh, for our last community meeting of the year. I believe it's going to be Saturday, December 11th. Uh, we, we have been in talks with um, the Roberts Family Development Center, so Daryl Roberts, to okay. host it up there in North Sacramento. Um, low, low that Christmas. will be finalized, but yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so then if people want to stay informed, are they going to CJEC official to join that mailing list to get this information? Yeah, so so you can join our list online, uh, cjcofficial.org. You can just check the website. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok also. But also, like I said, you know, we know that a lot of our folks are still even with all that great work and even all that great outreach are not going to you know, be able to, to um, connect to it. So we're actually going to be going to um, community events near you, right? Mm -hmm. And in your community. Okay? So uh, look for us in your neighborhood too. So you also want to hear from people. So not only can they go to your website to get information, but they can go to cjecofficial.org and provide information. So maybe oh, yeah. you're in a community right now where you're listening or you're watching online and you've never heard any of this information and you want CJC to get information to you or to your community, or you might even want to become involved. We definitely want you to do that part. We, we, we want you to get involved. So if you want to get involved or if you just want the information dispersed where you are or have more access to it, go to that site and request that. They have the ability to do that, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And if you need us to come speak to your group or speak to your organization, we're, we're setting up some conversations now in Oakland with uh, the Allen Temple, Allen Temple Baptist Church. Uh, uh, so we are more than happy to bring this uh, message to wherever you are. So uh, wherever you are, we are happy to come. Awesome, awesome. Now, I just want to talk about the um, agenda. I want to go over the agenda for day one and day two of the meetings that were held on September 23rd, September 24th. And Chris, tell us if they're sticking to the agenda. So day one of the agenda was the topic of discussion was to be the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery, and the impetus and implications of the great migration with topics that included all of that and expert testimony to give a primer on national reparations efforts and international law framework. And right. that was day one. Day right. two was to cover impetus and implications of the Great Migration, the lack of political inclusion, economic disempowerment, convict leasing, black codes, and other forms of racial terror. These are yeah. some heavy topics Heavy, that heavy. appear to be being discussed. Did you did you feel yeah. that these topics got covered thoroughly? Yeah, I, I, have to, I have to say this was actually a really heavy. Um, I think even during the, the meetings, you could tell some of the task force members. Even some of them were saying they were overwhelmed. I mean, the, what we you know, it was really heavy. Uh, I still feel it on me actually. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we heard from folks like Douglas Blackman, right, the writer of um, Slavery by Another Name. Um, is Isabel Wilkerson um, testified? She wrote um, "The Warmth of Other Suns" and mm -hmm. um, cast. Um, we had Dr. Stacy Smith testify, um, and she went and she dropped all the receipts mm -hmm. of how uh, there was there was slavery in California before there was a California, during the California, you know, you know, as as we were becoming California and after we formed the state. That's the state of California did not ratify or agree with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments until 100 years after 
those amendments were um, done. So 100 years after the Civil War, it, it took California to, to say, yes, we were okay with the things that, you know, the, the changes that were made. Right. Um, I mean, these are some of the things that we were, that, that were, that were coming out of the actual testimony, um, you know, last week. So this was a very, very heavy few days. Yeah. And so, you know, just saying that, and I think about things like the 4th of July and Black Day and the Pledge of Allegiance, once you have this information and have this knowledge about your history, it's hard to look at those days and those observances the same way. It's hard to feel like, you know, I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? You know where I'm going with that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to feel like you're a, um, a part of it, right? It's, yeah. you know, it's hard to feel like it's a it, it's a it's it, a it it's about you. Us, right? um, I think one I want to actually would love to hear what Jonathan thinks about that because, like, um, I mean, he right like, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, um, I I just think this is that when we're able to get to a point where we can, you know, not hold this information in silos, it'll be part of the healing process, and we really can be a united, greater, better America. But what there being the uh, just the structure to want to not put this information out or just say, yes, we did all these things. It's still hurtful. It's still part of the trauma. And it makes you not really. Am I really a part of this? You know, America, can we just say it? California, actually, can we just say it, do it, repair it? And now we can move on. So that's that's how it makes me feel. And, and I like how, how you say that. Let's just admit it, repair it, and move on. And there is no way around. It's, it keeps rearing its head every, I'm saying every other generation, just generalizing. But the, the ancestors are truly talking, and they are ready for this. And that will be the liberation. That will be the celebration. Because even now, today, still, there are secrets that we want to keep and hold. And I like secrets do have done us no good. And that's what America's experiencing today. Yeah. Right. You know, and you they, found they out during your history and your search of your family, Jonathan, there were some people who came to you and, and flat out said, I can't hold this secret anymore. There are people that have, and there are people that will be. And, you know, what I intend to do is what I, what I learn is share and help other people today. Even some of the historians, and I think they were very well versed in what they talked about. But, you know, one trigger that I had when uh, the professor or doctor uh, spoke uh, and she talked about the gold rush and said only 500 uh, African-American slaves were brought over. And I cringed because I know the census records, they were listed as white. I know that from my own experience and my own research. And so these are the things that were done. And they are trigger points when we look at, well, who's teaching history? Now, when you say that, I don't want that to slip by our listeners and our viewers. The records show one thing, but the records are manipulated to make the truth not appear the way it really was. So Correct. Share, share with us what you meant by that. She said 500, but you said, oh, no, but they were listed as white. Yeah, she said that there were only 500, roughly about 500. Um, African-Americans that were brought over here to California in the gold rush. And I know from my own history and my great-great-grandfather's census record, he was listed as white. 
and there are so a host that of others. He would not have been counted among that 500. He would have not have been counted among that. And I also know that there were a circuit of black churches in El Dorado County, right? A circuit. They actually sent a bishop out here to do a preaching circuit, not for 500 people. Those right. are communities. We do so those are the things that we have to look at. History. Yeah. Right. Key, um, can I actually add to this? And and so you you mentioned and you you both were saying this, and you're both saying it right. Um, but let's do the job now, right? Let's do let's do it now. Let's spill the tea now. Let's take the information and let's put it out now. Let's do it, right? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned those two or three things, right? Uh, Jonathan just just gave a, a concrete example of something else that was not known that now is known, and we got to keep making it more known. Um, but there's something else that that stuck out stuck stuck out to me too. So everybody's familiar with the Dred Scott case, right? The, the Dred Scott case, that was the national case, you know, way back in the, in the day that said that black people basically had no legal, weren't, weren't able, were not people. So you couldn't, you know, bring any cases in court. You're not even a person, right? right? But um, what we learned at the reparations hearing from, from, the, from, the, from the historians was that the federal government got that idea from California. They got that idea from the California Supreme Court. Yeah. The California Supreme Court in the Perkins case was the first place in the country to say, uh, why are you here in this court, uh, person? You're not or black. Mm. You're not a you're person. Not you, a person. You, you can't sue. You can't bring charges. You're not a person. You're property. And, and so let's talk about what those cases were at that time, because we, we know in the history books that they say that, that, that we weren't a whole person. Right. But when we talk about where we are today, the position we're in financially, it's situations like that that got dismissed in court that removed the wealth and the ability to live and, and you know, prosper. So what kind of cases in court were happening that said, hey, you know, if you don't have so if you're not a, if you don't have the right to go into court, uh, you don't you don't have. A right to, to do anything, and as and as and as a, as a matter of fact, this was the first this was the first time the, the U, United States said through California that these are not people, these are not humans, yeah. so they cannot. They you you can't build wealth. Mm -hmm. You are the wealth. Right, right. Yeah. So if I'm in court and I'm trying to fight about the the city or the county trying to take my land because of some kind of unpaid tax bill that, you know, I paid and they're imposing more taxes. I don't even have a right to defend myself because they're not even recognizing me as a person. So I, I may as well not even have any property. Well, and, and you and are all the property stuff. in that case, right? Uh, right. So like, you know, like you are the property, you are the wealth. So there's no way for you. And again, this is California setting the precedent, setting the example and saying, this is what we're treating these property like, um, right? And this is, and the state of, and the country said, yes, that's a good idea. Let's follow that. And the reason I want to point that out is because right now in the hills, there is a very sad thing happening with the burning that's taking place and people's houses are burning down and entire communities are on fire. And that, that happens, you know, on a regular basis. I heard in a news interview, a woman said, our family has been here for generations. And it's sad that all of our property 
has now been destroyed. Everything that's been in our family's hands. When she said that, I empathized with her, but then I also could not help but think about Jonathan's family. How much of that property might belong to some, may have belonged to someone black before it got into the hands of those individuals? And how many black people were not able to even buy property? Or, I mean, California would not, I mean, we, we wouldn't even let. So California, again, this came out, and, and again, I'm glad we're, we're doing this, right? Because now the information is not going to be held in silos and secret anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, California, well, first of all, if you were white, you got how much free acres of land when you got here? Right. I think it was 160 acres per family or something like that. Uh, this is what was coming out last week. Mm -hmm. So you got a lot of free land when you, when you got here, right? But also, right, uh, if you were black and you, or if, if, if you were enslaved and you were brought here, right, or if you ran away to, to, to California, California would send you right back right. to your to your to your slave owner wherever you came from. Um, and so this is year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation of us not being able to build wealth while at the same time also giving free wealth to other people. So it's both of those at the same time. Right. It's we block you and we give them. And then if you had anything. It was also taken from you. If you got anything, we're going to take it like we did out this family or we'll do right. the, the version of Black Wall Street to you. Right, right. right. If we need it, we're going to take it. If you try to stop us, we're going to take it by force right. or you know, freely. Jonathan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, I mean, my heart goes out to those families that lost everything, you know, in the fires. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's not. It explains a lot for the, a lot of those homes up there and properties were generations. And so I know from history that a lot of uh, black families, descendants of slaves, were ran off of their properties, mm -hmm. not from natural fires, but from hooded men that rode in the dark. And, and, and they were properties. Right. And let's be very clear. They were those properties that we're talking about. Not that they're on right. fire and that's why they're burning. I'm not saying that, Lord. No, I'm no. saying that there were properties up in those them there hills. Yes. Yes, I mean, listen, we had a grocery store in Shingle Springs, the Burgess family did, and there's a telephone pole that talks about it now. So, yes, those properties were. And that's why I said that the institutions are responsible. I don't want people move. Listen, their great great granddaddy didn't tell them how he got the land and they maintained it. Yeah, I don't want their land, but that's why the state of California has got to pay reparations because of all the people and not 500 to the professor that said there were just 500, okay? Mm -hmm. All the people that right. came over here and developed and made this the fifth largest economy of the world because they were working those gold mines um, in the early days. And then they sent for their families and there was church and community established. And I attend with the African American Gold Rush Museum to share those stories because they truly are inclusive. And they had some some chariot Europeans that were abolitionists that walked in silence. And I want to bring that out too. And make California We want to take a quick break, Jonathan. I can't, we are almost at the end of the show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want you gentlemen to both kind of give your, give some closing statements, some important information that the listening audience needs to know. Again, you know, we're on the men. This is an opportunity for America to get it right. And so we want everyone listening, no matter what color you are, we want you to embrace the truth. The truth right now is very painful. Able to, able to, able to, able to.
first, Chris, and I'll just say this is that I want, you know, all the viewers to walk away and think about this, you know, uh, California or the United States has kicked this can down the road so far. And, and it's almost like if you had a roof leak and you never repaired it. Right. Um, and then eventually it's just going to water. Your roof is bad, done. So now we're at the point where let's pull the entire roof off, rebuild it and make, yeah. as my friend Jay King would say, America, but in this case, California, Great. Just this one time. For, for once. Yes. <laughs> That's what he said. Make America great for once. For once. So that, that's what I say. Those are my closing comments. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Chris. Yeah, just, um, well, one, I want to, uh, my only closing thoughts are, well, one, let me say that just by, uh, for me, for a calendar sort of update, the next meetings of the California Reparations Task Force are, uh, I believe it's, Tuesday, October 12th, and Wednesday, October 13th. And then the following meetings are going to be held in December, December 8th, and December 9th. So I want I want to make sure that people have those on their calendar. Also, make sure that if you want to watch the live stream, we're live streaming them on YouTube at ETM Media Group. Uh, but also, I want to leave everyone with the fact that, you know, this is really a historic thing. Um, and I want to just us to pause for a second and sort of stand in the moment uh, and think about the fact that you are the first black folks really 
uh, since the end of the Civil War that's really had to actually work through how do you design a reparations program for black folks? Mm. Uh, we've that's never crazy. had to do this before. Uh, and there's no blueprint for us. Right. There's no script for us. So I, I want us to stand here for a second and just, you know, stand in, in that and then act accordingly, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. The only other opportunity, the only other time that America attempted to do reparations in in this magnitude was 40 acres right right at the end of the and and that failed promise right and we ended up giving the reparations yeah. you know right, we ended up paying white folks in some places those, right so those who actually went to war against the u.s right. so it, it was it was ratified by the president lincoln signed off on it and then they, they, they turned around and gave the land right back. Over 300 something thousand acres, gave it yep. right back to the Confederates. Yep. yep. And so here we are again, over a hundred years, almost 200 years later, <laughs> we get to try it again. And so we are asking all of you who are listening, who are watching, no matter what color you are, sometimes you are faced with a hard task. It doesn't feel well, it doesn't feel good. And I just heard today this thing, and I wanna leave you all with this. We don't need to be concerned with being right. We need to be concerned with doing right. If you are in a position where you're in leadership, or you don't even have to be in leadership. This is not about being right. This is not about standing your ground on what you think you're right about. This is about doing what's right. And to Larry Brown, who just posted, asking Burgess Brothers meets. Any correlation, Larry? Yes. Yeah. Key, you need a daily show. Tell that yes. to the station manager, Larry. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You've been listening to 97.5 FM KDEE. I am Agent Key. And remember, if you are doing what you were created to do, I will see you at the top. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson was the one that. No, Andrew Johnson became yeah, president yeah. because uh, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. When Andrew Johnson becomes president, he is sympathetic to the South. So the first thing he does is rescind Field Order right. 15. That's how that so when happens. he rescinds Field Order 15, the next thing he does is he makes um, Confederate judges, I mean, Confederate officers, judges and confederate soldiers over the penal system and they institute black codes and that's what i'll start are y'all listening and jay can jay can you can you comment on how they came out to california too huh can you oh, comment well, about how those confederate soldiers relocated to california too well then you have peter burnett because you know peter burnett was the governor but he before he was governor of california he was governor of oregon so he was yes. successful in banning blacks from Oregon. And yes. he came here to do the same here. The yes. only thing that stopped them was 
Chinese came in. There were more Chinese than blacks coming in. And so um, and, and see a black person, uh, Los Angeles and San Bernardino was founded by black people. A black woman founded San Bernardino, a black family founded Los Angeles. Yeah. So, so, but, but, um, he was so adamant and stopping blacks until the Chinese started coming in. They came in at such a, in such large quantities that they wow. shifted. And because we were still less than 1%. Well, and the they state. were using the, they were using the Chinese in the gold rush, Jay. They of were course. using the Chinese up in the well, mines in the gold rush. But then, but, but once they started building the railroad, is when they started getting a great influx of Chinese. So even that if you were natural, even if you were Chinese that was born in the United States, right? They gave, they sent you back to China. Yep. And in 1871, um, there were there were more Chinese lynched in California than African Americans, and I believe in 1871 at one time, 21 uh, Chinese men were lynched. At one time, either twenty-one or forty-one. But if there's if there's any people that have a correlation with black folk in this state, it's the Chinese. Yeah, well, and, and I don't know if you know about this, but some of those books have been taken out of circulation. El Dorado, the Gold Rush. You had people right. that were actually funding the Confederate Army. Absolutely, from Gold Rush money up in Placerville. Yes. Okay, and El Dorado, all that. County up there, but yes. we, but we, but, but we knew that that was happening all over the United States. It's how, it's how the Confederate, even people in the North, that 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 sympathized with the Confederates, but you know that's how they were able to actually fight for so long, because yes. if you look at it from a monetary standpoint, <laughs> the Confederates don't have a chance unless no. they get funding from somewhere else. Exactly. Yep. So, here's your history lesson for today. Our in-house historian, Mr. J. King, just the 